And as they go, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 3. This morning we're going to look at the first miracle that is recorded in the book of Acts. The title of our discussion this morning is, There is power in the name of Jesus, hope for change. Hope for change. And I realize as we gather each week and at various times and seasons in our lives, all of us have a list of things that we believe at some level really can't or won't ever change. And so we live with a fear, we live with an anxiety, we live with relationships, with financial struggles, we live with physical struggles, things that we just think are never going to change. This morning we're going to look at the story of a man who thought his life could never change. And so... In response to that, he would spend every day at a temple gate called Beautiful, begging for financial support. Not for relief from his problem, but for support in his problem. Because he had a pretty fundamental, natural perspective. This can't change. There is no hope for change. And so would you walk through this story with me about a man who in many ways is like us, in many ways unlike us, but in many ways his attitude, his perspective is our attitude and perspective at times in our lives. So verse 1 introduces us to the story. It's a day when Peter and John are going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Okay, so just a normal day in the life of the apostles, now filled with the Spirit of God, and they are going up to the temple for a season of prayer. They come to a gate, probably the gate that separates the Gentile area from the Jewish area or the inner parts of the court. And so at that gate, they encounter a man. Verse 2 tells us about this man. A man who was crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So Peter and John are coming, and then there's this character that's entered into the story. He's a a beggar who is a cripple. Here's a few facts about his life. Okay, one is that he is crippled from birth. If you go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 22, you find that he's been in this state for over 40 years. Okay, so he's... He has a congenital defect. He was born in this state. He was utterly dependent on others. You find in this text that friends were carrying him to the temple gate so that there he could beg. The other thing we learn is this. This was his daily routine. He was into a settled pattern and flow in his life. He would go. He would kind of hit up people going into the temple. And this was a favorable place if you will, to beg and to ask people for financial kindness, mercy, grace, alms, because they're going into a religious setting where they're going to do certain things to earn the favor of God. And so the request for alms would would just be a good place to, to have this as the spot where your need is put out there and where people can respond. Because people typically are very religious and they tend to feel good about what? About giving someone a little bit of financial support, relieve a little pain, and things will go better for everybody. Pretty fundamental perspective. The irony of the account to me is this. 
He's placed daily at the gate called beautiful while he is a physically broken man. This gate called beautiful, most speculate according to the writings of Josephus, historian in the first century, that this was a gate about 75 foot high, double door swinging wide. You can imagine how glorious this was. Most believe that it was a gate that was covered with bronze, or with brass, I'm sorry, would glimmer in the light of the day. Okay, a beautiful place, and at the base of this gate, there is this individual with a very sad story. Well, as Peter and John are coming into the temple area, this beggar does what he always does. Verse 3. It says, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Some translations, for alms, for what was expected to be given to impoverished, physically ill people. He asked them for what was customary. And at some level expected that that's what he would receive. Verse 4, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his full attention, expecting to get something from them. Okay, meaning this kind of connection with a beggar would be rare. If you've ever walked around the streets of New York City, I'm fairly certain you're like most people. You treat people that are sitting along the sidewalk begging as if they're invisible. You act like you didn't catch in your peripheral what you did catch in your peripheral. Okay, so you, you see them, but you... Just gonna get, what does Peter do? Peter stops. John stops. And they look directly at this man. And the expectation that wells up in his heart is, I'm going to get something from these guys. A lot of people have ignored me, have taken me as an invisible man sitting here, but these guys aren't ignoring me. And it's fascinating that they, they fix their eyes on him. Something in relationship to the work of the Spirit in Peter and John's heart stopped them. Okay, they had been in this area before. Jesus taught in the right inside of this gate, Solomon's Colony. Jesus taught there, John chapter 10 says. They've been there. It's also likely that they had seen this man before. He's been there 40 years. He comes there daily. He's well known to those within the temple precincts. And Peter gives to him a shocking response in verse 6. Peter said to him, silver and gold I do not have. The man's probably thinking, then why'd you stop? Why'd you get up my hopes? Why'd you get up my expectations? And then Peter says this most amazing thing. He says, but what I have, I give to you. He asked this question. What did Peter the Apostle have? Peter the Apostle had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the authority in the name of Christ to heal the sick. That's what he had. So what the man is looking for, Peter and John say, we don't have any of that. But what you need, we have that. And somehow in the providence of God, the Spirit of God touched Peter and John to reach out and to bring healing into this man's life at that moment. And so what happens? Peter, and you could say it in one of two ways, in an act of faith, or in an act of doubt, what does he do? He stretches out his hand to this man. Okay, and I, I'm going to tell you, I lean on the side that he, when he reached out his hand to take hold of this crippled beggar's hand, he knew what was going to happen. So he reaches out in, in an act of faith, and he says to this man, notice what he says, 
taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. Okay, end of verse 6. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, so that the source of the miracle is clearly identified. This work that is going to happen is attributed to the name of Christ. Okay, and this is the first glimmer of this theme. Hope is found where? In Jesus. They stare at him and bring to him hope in the name of Jesus. Peter reaches out his hand in an act of faith. And notice what happens. This is just amazing to me. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And these are very deep medical terms that Luke is using. Because he's a medical doctor as he writes the book of Acts. And so it says, immediately, this man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. He didn't need help. He did not need assistance. He was instantaneously and totally made well and sound. Now, verse verse 16 is going to bear this out. Okay? Peter's going to say, it is in the name of Jesus that this man is before you. And the word that's used is sound, physically restored. Utterly, completely transformed. I love what happens then in verse 8. He went with them into the temple courts. Okay, so these guys changed his life. Okay, in a way that, let's be honest, we're sitting here this morning saying, I I wish I could kind of get into that context and sense and feel and know what that was like. So what does the text do? The text seeks to open the doors for us to see what this was like. They went into the, he joined himself to them. He went with them into the temple courts. And notice what it says. He is walking and he is jumping and he is praising God. Utterly unashamed. Celebrating the work that Christ had done in his life through the Apostle Peter. Three times, some translations, four times. He's walking, he's walking, he's walking, he's walking. Why? Because that's what Peter said to him. Young man, walk. Walk. And his life is radically transformed. It is something he had never done before. Okay, and that is the the most significant aspect of this text is this man did not get up and struggle to ambulate, to walk. He got up and he was leaping, he was jumping, he was exalting God. Completely and utterly changed. Now verse 10 is fascinating. Notice what it says. It says, they, meaning the larger audience, recognized him. And this is in the imperfect tense, which means they started looking at each other saying, isn't he the guy that like, was over there? That they had seen day after day? And the response, it, it, it comes over them. Why? Because when a miracle like that happens, it is what? It's unbelievable. And so... The Greek just carries a beautiful picture. They began one after another after another to recognize him. Aren't aren't you the guy? Didn't I just see you over there? Or better yet, think about the people that carried him to the temple that day. 
think of that. Don't need you guys anymore. <laughs> Don't, no appointment tomorrow morning? I'm fine. This life changed. And what's amazing to me is, you have a man that was seeking what? He was seeking support in his condition. And what did God want to do? God wanted to change his condition. Right? And, and that's, you would say, what's the essence of this? The essence of this is, that there is in the name of Christ, in the work of Christ, there is hope for the impossible. There is hope for God to radically transform circumstances that are seemingly impossible. And I think I could argue this morning that we have people probably sitting here and preaching to you today that have certain things in their life that they think, you know what, maybe this can't change. This circumstance, this person, this struggle. That it just... So we, we beg to God to support us in our condition rather than asking God to change our condition. And I think this miracle has a purpose. I do not believe that the purpose of this miracle is simply to relieve the physical suffering of this man. And I think the rest of the text, the sermon that Peter is now going to preach, in light of this miracle or in the, in the, in the realm of this miracle, it's not going to be about... God did this for him. He could do this for you. It's going to be about something that is larger. It's pointing to something that is more glorious and more beautiful and more incredible. Why was it done? Verse 11. And you just watch how, how, how this unfolds. Okay? The people, end of verse 10, were filled with wonder and with amazement at what had happened to him. So they, they identify clearly that he is the guy... And then this man, who has been healed, verse 11, it says, he is holding on to Peter and John. And I, I don't know about you, but I think there is there a beautiful picture of humility. He, he, what is he doing? He, he found hope through these men, through their words, and they're pointing to Jesus. And what is he doing? He is clinging to them. And verse 11 says, while the beggar was hanging on to them, to Peter and John, the people were astonished and came running in the place called Solomon's Colony. And Peter's response to them is, I think, very beautiful. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why does this surprise you? Most of us would be saying, Are you kidding me? <laughs> why does this this man, why does that surprise us? He had a decade long, he had four decade long struggle. He's walking. We are stunned, astonished. And so this, this crowd is, is, is gathering in. That's, I think, the purpose of this miracle. And there's a sense in which he asks this question. Why would Peter say, why does this amaze you? Didn't Jesus do stuff like this? Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Aren't we continuing to do what Jesus did and taught? And there's this, this continuity between the apostles of Christ and the work of Jesus Christ himself that is moving forward. Why does this surprise you? And then I love Peter's next question. Why are you staring at us? Okay. Which is like, they're, they're, just, they're, they're just like, eyes are fixed. Okay, on these two individuals and this third individual, cling to them. We don't, know, we don't know what the picture is like. Is it Peter and John? This man's in the middle holding on to them and say, these are the men? We, we don't know, but we do know this. The crowd comes and what are they doing? They have their eyes fixed on Peter. And what does Peter say? 
Why are you looking at us? And, and, and then this disqualifier. As if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. Right? I mean, that, this is, and here's where the whole crux of the text comes up. This is the tension. That a miracle takes place. They're looking at Peter and John as if they're responsible for the miracle. And what are Peter and, Peter and John saying? Don't look at us as if we did this. And he's not saying, don't look at us because it's rude to stare. Okay, he's saying don't look at us as if you're attributing this man's healing to our power or to our piety, our, our godliness. The idea is our religious performance. Okay, don't think that this happened in response to the good that God sees in us. No, there's something going on here that is much more glorious. This is a story of hope. Hope for change is found. And Peter's just going to drive after this point. He's going to say, hope for change is found in Jesus. And the question in context becomes this. Who is it that this hope is for? Okay, so let's first look at this question, or this thought. The source of hope is found in Jesus. I want you to notice how Peter pushes strongly in this direction. He's going to preach a sermon... And we're just going to do the, the chapter 3 part this morning. He's going to preach a sermon that is all about Jesus. All about Jesus the Messiah who is rooted in all of the Old Testament. That's what he's going to do. To show that this Jesus is the one who changed this man's life. So let's just work through it and look at a couple basic principles. One is this. The source of hope for change is found in Jesus. Okay, and I want you to notice how Peter unpacks this in verse 13. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. Okay, which is to say what? The purpose of this miracle is to show that God, the Father in heaven, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is to say that the God of Israel, of you, is the one who was responsible for this man's miraculous transformation. So deflect all attention away from himself. He's not going to start a ministry in Peter's name, you know, Peter of Galilee Ministries. No. He said, I didn't do this. This is God. All credit and all honor and all glory is due to him. It's in his name that this happened. So the key to the miracle is that it was consciously done by faith in the name of Jesus. And then you got you this issue, okay? What does it mean, the authority of His name? Okay? You and I understand this if I use this kind of an illustration, okay? A policeman, you know, hops out of the woods and says, Police! Okay? You're going to do one or two things. You're going to freeze, or you're going to run. Okay? Your response to that tells what you believe about that individual. Okay? When they say police, what are they saying? I represent a, an authority, and that authority is coming to bear in your life. Okay, so an innocent person is going to do what? When they hear the police stop, that name carries authority, and that authority determines the outcome. Okay? In this case, what's happening? The name of Jesus is invoked. The authority of Jesus is invoked in relationship to this man's physical struggle, and he is instantaneously transformed. Okay, that's the, the miracle of this text. Verse 16. Here's what Peter says. He says, By faith in the name of Jesus 
this man whom you see and know. And the idea of knowing here is what? You know his physical condition. You know his personal story. He has been made strong. Okay, and the words here are words for soundness of body. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this man complete healing as you can all see. Okay, so first thought is this. The source of hope and change is found where? It's found in Jesus. Okay, and, and the apostles, after this miracle takes place, they, they are men that are, I think we can say, aware of their limitations. But they are also convinced of the fact that Jesus does not know such limitations. And so when they approach Him, when they see a need like this, they say, in the name of Jesus, walk. Okay, and it, it's a miracle, I believe, that takes place to attract attention to the authority and life-changing capacity that is found in the name of Jesus Christ. So the first thought that emerges out of this text is this. The source for hope and change is clearly Jesus Christ. And it is by faith in Christ that the power of heaven invades our individual lives. Okay, so that Hebrews 11 is going to say something like this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, so Peter, he, he, he turns their gaze. Don't stare at us as if we did this. He turns their attention to Jesus because hope for change is found in Jesus. Now, the next thing that happens in this text to me is fascinating. Hope for change is found in Jesus. Who is that hope offered to? Okay, who is that hope? Who does God change? Who does, he, who does He come and offer hope for change to? Now, most people think that God offers hope for change to religious people, right? That if I do enough good things, then that change that Jesus Christ offers will, will more likely flow into my life. Well, when I read this text, what do I find? I find that the, the, the change that this man experienced was unsought and undeserved, Right? And when I look at the text and see where Peter's going with this, he's going to be talking to people that certainly do not deserve hope for change. But he's going to offer it to them. Okay? So let's look at this next thought. God's offer of hope for change is to rebels. Okay, verse 13. Second half of the verse. It says, After attributing the miracle to Jesus... And to his glorious name, the text says this. It says, you handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Do you see this and sense this ramping up? Okay. Peter's going to offer hope for change in this text. Who's he offering it to? Okay, I'll give you a, just a, a, a series of contrasts that are pointing out in this text. It's offered to verse 13b, people that handed Jesus over and disowned him. Okay, they, who did they hand him over to? They handed him over to Pilate. What did Pilate say? He's innocent. What did they demand? Crucify him. Okay, that's who hope and change is being offered to in this text. 
Then verse 14 says, you rejected the holy and righteous one. The one who was declared by Pilate to be innocent. And what did they ask for? You asked for a murderer. Now think of this. Is Peter's preaching here weak and you know, a little bit confusing? Or is it direct and bold? Okay? You know what he's doing? He's telling them the truth about themselves. Why? So that they can see that God loves rebels. That God loves people that are aware of and are willing to acknowledge their sinfulness. And why is Peter saying this? So that they would have an understanding of their status before God. That they would see the depth of their sin, the consequence of it, and the consequence of it, and turn to God. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released in his place. Now, what's fascinating to me is what? That is the, one of the most perfect pictures of substitutionary atonement, of the idea that Christ stands in my place to bear the wrath of God for me. You gave him over and asked that a murderer be released in place of what? His life. Folks, that's the gospel, right? A murderer, a known famous sinner goes free and the Son of Man dies on the cross and sheds his blood. By his stripes, we are healed. Third contrast. And this is where Peter just gets, I think, amazingly blunt and courageous. Verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Okay, now that's, to me, that, that's courage. Okay, he's in the temple precincts. He's in the area where the authorities dwell. He's in the area where the, where the religious people of Israel live. But they have, something, they have something on their hands that they are unwilling to acknowledge. And Peter is unwilling to let them go on in ignorance. And so what does he do? He courageously points them to the truth of the decisions that they had made. What is he accusing them of? How do you read verse 15? What is Peter saying to them? He's accusing them of murder. Okay? Of treason. Of the highest order of rebellion. That's what he's accusing them of. And who is it that they killed? They killed the author of life. The origin of life. Life and hope was found in Jesus. That's who they gave over. So their, their crime in this context, the ones that Peter is evangelizing, he's just said to them, you're guilty of murder. And it is, to me, it just, it's very, very strong and pointed. Now, we could argue this for a second and say, okay, who killed Jesus? Well, at one level, those that gave him over in a lie, certainly bearing false testimony, and he dies as a result of it, are guilty of what? Guilty of murder. If you lie about someone and they end up getting killed because of your lie, then you have their blood on your hands. Who else is responsible? Pilate is. They handed him over to Pilate, and then Pilate orders his death, and the Roman soldiers kill Jesus. And so we can look at it and say, yeah, that I understand. And here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Is there any sense in which I am responsible for the death of Christ? Is there any sense in which we bear personal responsibility for what happened to Jesus? And I think I could argue from this text and from numerous other texts 
that you and I, at some level, bear personal responsibility for the death of Christ. Why? Because it is my sin, my rebellion, my rejection of God's rightful standard that Jesus died to forgive. He died for me. Yes, the people of the day lied and had Him murdered. Yes, Pilate ordered the death of a man that he declared himself to be innocent. But yes, my sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 says this, Christ died for my sins, that is, in my place, the just for the unjust, that He might what? Bring us to God. Folks, let this sink in. It would be possible to look at this and say, oh, this is somewhat rude of Peter. Okay? But the question we have to ask is this, is it true? Is what Peter is saying about them true? The answer is yes. It's clearly, vividly true that they murdered the Son of God. And Peter's not going to say, oh, you know, let's just ignore that. And let's talk about the lies that you said. And, and, and... No, what does Peter do? P- Peter is going right to the heart of the matter. Why? Because the grace of God is only understood to be grace. And the love of God is only understood to be amazing, far-reaching love when we understand who we really are. You see, if I think I can extract myself from my sinful situation, I don't understand the depths of my sin. Nor do I understand the the reach and the magnitude of God's love. It's a love for rebels. It's a love for people who literally shook their fist in the face of Christ and said, crucify Him. Some of them actually had struck Him. And the soldiers brutally tortured Him, mocked Him, and killed Him. Peter wants them to understand that they killed the Son of God. And I think Peter later in 1 Peter wants us to understand, I killed the Son of God. My sin nailed him there. Okay, and and once that settles in, I begin to say, okay then, why? And, and, And how could he love people like us? But he does. Verse 17, Peter goes into what I will say is a somewhat firm confrontation. He says, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Meaning, what? They they didn't fully comprehend who Jesus was. But they were nonetheless guilty of ordering and calling for His death. They didn't understand the full scope of the Old Testament Scriptures. They didn't understand that the resurrection was going to take place. But once the resurrection had taken place, and, and Peter can say about them and himself, we are witnesses of this. Once that happened... <clears throat> Their guilt is secured. Okay? Their their need for what Jesus did for them on the cross has become very, very clear. They were ignorant of the full picture of Jesus' true identity. And there's a sense in which Peter will later, or Paul will later say, if they had known it, meaning in a convincing way, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they did. And they bear responsibility for that crime, for that sin. Now, verse 18 gives us a fascinating sense of relief. And Peter, so, so Peter says, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your leaders, but there certainly was a lot of perversion in the condemnation of Jesus. There were people paid to lie about the, <clears throat> the life of Jesus. That's clear. But Peter cuts them a break and says, I know that you didn't fully understand what he had done for you. That's what I'm now going to tell you. Verse 18. 
You did it in ignorance. But, this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets. Saying that His Christ would, and some translations are going to say that His Christ must suffer. Okay, now folks, here, this is, this is the, kind of the, the, the difficult edge of this text. Okay? They put Him to death, and God put Him to death. Okay? Both are true. Okay? And this is mystery. Okay? They put Him to death because they simply hated Him and what He represented. They hated that He hung out with sinners. They hated that He extended grace. Why did God allow Jesus to die? Why did He send Jesus to die? You know why God did that? God did that out of love. Love for each of us. So the, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, says that God so loved the world that He what? Gave His one and only Son. For what purpose? Well, Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Okay? So the mystery is this. There are people that are responsible for the death of Christ who need to repent of that sin. But God the Father also sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the price of our sin. One act is an act of hatred. One act is an act of supreme love. Okay, and, and what does Peter want them to understand? You put to death the Lord of life. In His death, a murderer was set free. And you start to get these pictures or echoes of the Gospel that emerge out of this text. For them it was rebellion. For God it was love. And, and Isaiah 53 helps us to understand. So just read this text for you real quickly. Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, Surely He took up our infirmities, that is Jesus, and carried our sorrows. We considered Him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you understand now what's happening here? Who killed Jesus? My sin killed Jesus. The bottom line is the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross was to pay for sin so that every rebel on earth could have hope. So that every person who is willing to realize that all sin, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God, that every person who is willing to realize that their sin is the cause of Jesus' death could be forgiven. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's what he says. Every one of us, each of us turns to his own way. That is what rebellion is, isn't it? Someone in authority over you says, go do this. And we say, nope, I'm going to go do this. Okay? It's me saying, God, I want life on my terms. I want life the way that I want it. That's the essence of our sinfulness. And the Bible, I think, makes it very clear that we're all guilty of that. But what happens? All we like sheep go our own way. Each turns his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So that on the cross, what happens? Jesus Christ bears the consequence of my rebellion. My rebel heart and its consequences are borne by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Hard truth, but necessary truth. We all sin. We all fall short. We are the people for whom Jesus Christ came and died. So we see this source of hope is found in Jesus. We see that hope is offered to rebels. But the question is this. How does that hope 
that is found in Jesus become personal? How does that how does that change in the hope of change? How does that become part of my personal experience? That's the question that kind of hangs out in this text. Now, let's look at verse 19. As Peter draws this down. He says, and at the end of verse 18, he says, it was prophesied by the prophets through all the prophets that the Christ would suffer. That He would stand in your place and bear the price of your sin. That's what happened on Calvary. Verse 19. How should rebels respond? Okay, if all of a sudden you realize that you owe a great debt to God, that you deserve death and judgment and hell forever from God, that's what you deserve because you're responsible for His death. What do you do? What do you do? Here's what religion says. Religion says, feel badly about your wrong and do everything you can do to offset it. Right? That's what religion says. It says, yes, 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 you've done something wrong. But are you a murderer? Eh, not that bad. Okay? Overcome your shortcomings by doing good things. That's what religion says. What does the gospel say? Okay, that's the question we need to answer. What does the gospel say about how rebels can be brought back into a place of hope? How people without hope, deserving condemnation, can find life and life abundantly. The path to hope is repentance. So what does Peter say in verse 19? He says, repent then... In light of what? In light of the suffering of Christ. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this heaviness, what do you find? You find hope emerging, right? You see sin and you say, I can't overcome that. Where's hope found? Hope is found according to this text, according to God's call in turning to God. It's not found in feeling badly about your sin. It's not found in self-inflicted restrictions and punishment. It's not found in trying harder. Okay, folks, understand this. These people were in their church building when Peter's speaking to them. They're inside Solomon's colony. Okay, they're at church. He's not going to preach to them about how they should try harder and become more, you know, more effective and, 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 and if you will, uh, dedicated Jewish people. That's not what he's saying to them. He's saying, you know what you guys need to do? You need to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is this. And there's two words that are used here, and both of them are very important. One is a change of mind, okay, about my relationship with God. And, and what is it? It's when I realize that, you know what, I, I'm, 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 I'm an okay person, I'm a, I'm, I'm a somewhat religious person, I'm a this, I'm a that, whatever it is. It's when I come to realize, you know what, in light of the righteousness of Christ, I am a rebel. I am a sinner who deserves the judgment of God. And then it is this. It is a turning around in response to God's verdict about my sin. Okay, and it, it, how does it work? It works with a sense of conviction. How do you think these people felt standing there? Peter lays out this list of things that they have done. You handed him over. You rejected him. You killed the author of life. <clears throat> Why does Peter say that? Because he wants to make them feel bad. No. You know what Peter wants them to do? He wants them to flee to the source of this man's healing. He wants them to realize that apart from Christ, they're broken, they're hurting, they're condemned. And so he tells them the truth. Why? So that as they see the truth about themselves, they're going to say, we don't want to go that direction anymore. And we're going to run and turn back to God. And that's the picture here. Repentance is, as I'm going in this direction of sinfulness, there's a change of mind about my sinfulness. But that change of mind is then accompanied with a turning 
and I'm moving back towards God. And the only way I'm going to do that is when I realize that when I go back to God, I'm not going to get what I deserve. Why? Because what I deserve was poured out on His Son. The wrath for my sin fell on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. A change of mind about my life direction, a turning around in response to God's verdict about my sin. Jump down to verse 26. It says, When God raised up His servant, He sent Him first to you to bless you. Now folks, think about this. When God raised up His servant Jesus, through whom this man was healed, He sent Him first to bless you. By what? By turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now folks, that's the glory of this text. What they had done to Jesus was quite simply what? It's wicked. And what is Peter saying? You guys have blood on your hands. And folks, sometimes we, we struggle with communicating to people the true depths of their sinfulness. We, we, we're hesitant to tell people that they're rebels, but that's what God says. That when I turn away and go my own way in my life, what am I? I'm, I'm a sinner, but how's that sin understood? It's understood as rebellion. It's me turning away from God. When I really should be turning to God. How do I turn to God? When do I turn to God? When I see that Jesus is hope for change. Do you see? And so, what happens in this text? What happens in this text is, hope for change comes into a man's life. A miracle. Change. Something that people didn't think could change, changed. And they're staring at him. Isn't he? Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It's a miracle. A de decade-long struggle is instantaneously resolved. In this text, what happens? Seeing Jesus in such a way that I sense the guilt of my sin and I have a change of heart about it and I have a change of direction and I turn to God and say, God, forgive me. I want to be your child. I'm a rebel. You see, what did these people have to admit? They had to admit that they were murderers. Now, here's what we say. Okay, and I, I go through this quite often. I say to people, hey, if you died today, do you have the assurance that you would go to heaven? Most people will say, I, what's the word they use? I hope. They don't mean the same thing that this text means. What they're saying is, on a good day, right? I hope. Say to people, if you stood before God today and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Here's what most people say. I've never murdered anybody. I mean, I, I, I can't, I never murdered someone, I don't cheat on my wife. Okay? How does Jesus respond to that? Because what are people trying to do? They're trying to escape this burden of guilt. They're trying, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like a sinner. I mean, you don't think I'm like, you think you're better than me? Right? And that's the direction it usually goes. Wait, they start to catch the implication of what you're saying. And, and what's their response? Their response is to try to self-justify. To find hope in what? In their religion, in their life, in their performance, right? What did Jesus say? Here's what Jesus said in interrogating deeper. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said we've never murdered someone. But what does Jesus say? He says, have you ever hated someone? Like, if you ever wished that someone wasn't in your life anymore, husband, wife, kids with your parents, friends, work relationship, you just wish they were gone. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you've hated someone like that, what are you guilty of? This is uncomfortable, right? 
I'm guilty of the same thing these people are guilty of. Murder. Meaning what? I violate the law of God. But when I see that and the sense of my sinfulness becomes clear and I stop trying to, to justify it, I stop trying to minimize it, I own it. And I say, like they're going to say to Peter, you know what, Peter? A couple thousand are going to say, you're right. Now, the religious establishment is going to what? They're going to go into flames. Okay, they're in chapter 4, they're going to become so mad that they're going to threaten them with their lives. But there was a group of people there that day who when they heard this message of hope through the one that God had appointed to suffer in their place, they, were, they realized that death of Christ that was out of their hatred was out of God's love. And that the wrath that they deserved for their giving up of Jesus had actually in fact fell on Him. Do you see? And Peter says, okay, how, how do you resolve this? What do I do? Peter says, repent. Just have a change, experience a change of heart. Allow the Spirit of God to convict you like He does in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 when they say, brothers, what do we need to do? What does Peter say? Repent and be identified with Jesus through the waters of baptism and your sins will be forgiven. Now, in this text, what happens? Let's point this out to you real quickly. Okay? Why should I come to see the depths of my sin, experience a change of heart that results in a change of direction. Why do that? Okay, why go through that? And it's, it's, it, it is a painful thing to, to reckon with our rebellion. To own it and to say, you know what? I've always wanted to get away from that and say, yeah, I've never murdered someone, I've never cheated on my wife. But if Jesus said, if you looked on someone to lust, you've committed adultery. And if you hated someone, you've murdered. And I could go on and on through the commands to say, the purpose of them is to show the depths of my sin, that I'm a rebel, but that there's hope for rebels when they turn to God. That's the good news of the gospel. The path to hope is when we turn from our wicked ways and we turn towards God. And God, what does God do? God reveals His love through Jesus Christ. He tenderizes our heart by looking at the gospel, by looking at the cross on which Jesus died. And as we see that in our sin, we realize that there's hope for me. Hope for change. And as a result of that, we turn this turning change of mind and then moving in God's direction to embrace His free grace that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. When people turn, what happens? When a sinner comes to God and says, God, you know what? I'm sick of the direction of my life. And I really don't believe it can change. But this text tells me that there is hope for change. And it's hope for people that murdered your son. Look, folks, all of us can say, why would God use that illustration? Here's why I believe God does it. He reaches to the lowest of the low so that you can realize that there's no sin that you can commit against God. There's no higher treason than killing His son that you could commit. If there's hope for them, if there's hope for those people that murdered Jesus, guess what? There's hope for every person sitting in this room. That's the glory of the gospel. And God's always doing this, isn't He? He rescues Paul. Why? Because Paul was the worst of sinners. And Paul says, you know why God did that? So that no one listening to me could ever think that the grace of God can't reach me. It does. It does. And it happens and it occurs through the work of Jesus on the cross. So in verse 19 he says, Repent then and turn to God so that, and here's the result, your sins may be, and I just love this statement, wiped out. Every regret wiped out. 
And the word picture here is very simple. In the ancient world, they wrote on something called papyrus, papyrus, which was reeds flattened in a crisscrossing sort of way, dried, and then they would use an ink that didn't have acid in it to write on the page. If you wanted to change something on the page, all you had to do was take a, white, a, a wet sponge and go like this, and it was gone. And every person listening to Peter that day knew exactly what he, said, what he was saying. What was going to be forgiven? Murder. Murder. How? Well, the blood of Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, why repent? Because when you repent, your sins will be forgiven. But there's another thing that happens in this text. Your sins are forgiven through the Son of God. No matter how deep it is, no matter how bad it is, no one in this room has gone too far. God's arm is not too short that it cannot save. But He promises something else. He promises a restoration of your life. You see, God doesn't want to support you where you are. God wants to change you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. If you're in Christ, what have you become? A new creation. The old is gone. The record is blotted out. And now you have become in Jesus a new creation. He's created someone who now will love Him, who formerly was a blasphemer perhaps, who formerly was perhaps a, a person who was unfaithful to his wife, who formerly was someone who hated people. What does God want to do? God wants to restore you. You know what God wants to do? He wants to overcome the rebellion that you have, perhaps towards your mate. He wants to cause you to love them. That's the promise of this text. Repent and turn to God. Your sins will be forgiven and times of refreshing will come to you from the Lord. He will change you. He will restore you. He will drive out sin and bring in by His grace and power righteousness. That's what God does whenever sinners turn to Him. The picture is that he revives. Now, you might say, how does this all tie into the story of the beggar? And I think it's this, this simple. The healing of the beggar is a picture of Christ healing from sin. Okay? This man is captured in a circumstance that has haunted him for decades. And in the name of Jesus Christ, based upon the work of Christ, he is suddenly and instantaneously changed. He is delivered. Salvation and every miracle is a look ahead to this greater restoration. Okay, it's what it, God is starting something in you that this text will go on to say He's going to bring to completion. One day, it, He says, in the power of the name of Jesus, He will change everything. Everything will be changed by the power of the name of Jesus. The healing work of God in this man's life produced what? Clinging to two other men. What is that? You know what I see? I see a deep humility. I see something that religion will never produce. I see a man who is so grateful for the power of God that has been at work in his life through the name of Jesus. That what's he doing? He is, he is clinging to them. He, is, he has not been made proud by religious personal accomplishment. He is humbled by what Jesus Christ has done for him. This miracle becomes a platform for the gospel. Also, it is a picture of the gospel. You can look at this man's change and say, that's what God will do for you inside of your heart. And the last thought I'd like to draw down to as we work our way towards the Lord's table is this. 
in the name of Jesus Christ in this story, decade-long shackles are broken. That's what happens. Okay? And the bottom line is this. Many of us tend to live in shackles. We tend to live confined by fears of the past. We tend to live under, under the restraints or under the patterns of sin that are stifling our spiritual life. Okay? What's this text tell me? This text tells me that God can change the thing that I can't, that I don't believe can change. The circumstance, the struggle, that I, I just, I don't think it can be resolved. This text is saying, yes, it can. And it is also looking forward and saying, one day it will all be resolved. When Jesus Christ who healed this man returns. What are you hoping for God to do for you today? What struggle, what fear, what sin do you think God can't forgive or overcome? Because this text, I believe, is here to say, there is hope in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, maybe you, you started coming to church and for you it's become kind of a religious thing that by coming you feel better. Uh, your life seems to be going a little bit better. And folks, here's what I want to say to you, okay? Through trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross who suffered in your place, God does not want to support you in your current condition. He wants to transform your life. And He wants you to look at this healing of this man, this beggar. And he wants you to, see, he wants you to say, if God can do that for him, then He can change me. He wants you to look at the people in Israel who were guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ, of murdering Him. And what is he doing? He's offering them forgiveness. He wants you to look at them and say, if God can forgive them, then God by his grace through the blood of Christ can forgive me. And he wants to humble you so that when you come to the, the, the elements of the Lord's table this morning, there is from our hearts a true expression out of deep, humble gratitude saying, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus who you sent to suffer, to bear the price of my sin, whom you sent so that I could be forgiven and set free and filled with hope of life change. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?